0: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to conclude our investigation of the Bach Sonatas and Partitas for solo violin. I provided a little historical context for these unaccompanied works in the last episode, so today we're going to get right to the music itself. Sonata number 2 in A minor begins as usual for a work in the sonata da chiesa form with a slow movement. Mark Grave in this instance, and stylistically somewhat similar to the opening movement for Sonata No. 1 in G minor which we looked at in the last episode. Like that previous movement, this one has a clearly improvisatory flow about it, which is almost always reflected in a rhythmically flexible performance. The movement begins again with a richly sonorous multiple-stop root position chord announcing the tonic. The lowest note in the chord, the A moves down a step and then vaults almost two octaves higher before a steep and rapid decline down the scale. This sort of large leap leading to a rapidly descending scale line becomes a prominent motive as the movement continues, although the ascending leap is not always quite so large, often in fact restricted to an octave. Let's hear the first seven measures in which Bach moves from A minor to C major, the relative major, and then back to A minor. As you may have noticed, the large leap followed by a rapidly descending scale was by no means the only thematic idea we encounter in these early measures. We actually hear a fairly wide variety of ideas, particularly rhythmic patterns. It will come as no surprise that sweeping descending phrases are generally followed by ascending ones, although Bach keeps us guessing somewhat as to the timing of these undulations but the various descending and ascending phrases are often distinguished by specific rhythmic identities. Since the tempo is slow, the fast-moving scalewise passages are often notated in thirty-second notes, with sixteenths and eighths mixed in. But sixty-fourth notes often appear from time to time to provide little rhythmic surges within the line, and dotted note figures also occur in combination with these other patterns as do sixteenth-note triplets. All of these things add to the fluidity of the line, further suggesting an improvisatory flow. Another thing you may have noticed was the employment of two quite distinctive layers of melodic movement. The bottom line in the opening measures, projected as usual by the use of multiple stops, traces a line down from A, eventually to a C, where Bach confirms his temporary modulation to C major. But of course the line doesn't really go down all that way, because the violin quickly runs out of notes. After the line descends from A to G, Bach places the next note in the pattern, the F, up a seventh rather than down a step, and the line proceeds to descend from there, although even at that it doesn't descend in a straight line. When we reach D, Bach moves up a half step to D sharp primarily because he wants to inject a little tonal variety at that point, and the D-sharp serves to project us for an instant toward E minor. Here are just the first three bars again, where the lower line descends, somewhat disguised, from A to E. My first longer example ended with Bach coming back to A minor, and from that point on, employing the same type of melodic lines we've already seen, along with one or two striking new ones. Eventually he comes to a cadence on E minor and a short pause. In the second part of the piece, Bach becomes more tonally adventurous, touching on both D minor and G minor before returning to A minor. He ends, however, not on the original tonic of A minor, but on an E minor chord to prepare us for the next movement. The next movement is a fugue, a rather long one at 285 bars, compared to the fugue for the G minor sonata we looked at in the last episode, which was only 94 measures long. On the other hand, it is by no means the longest in these works for solo violin. The fugue movement for the sonata in C major, which we're not going to look at, is all of 354 measures, and I think for many listeners may overstay its welcome to some extent. But this fugue, in A minor, succeeds rather well in keeping the listener's attention, even if it doesn't actually contain a great deal of fugal imitation, per se. It begins with a quite distinctive subject of two bars ending on the downbeat of the third. Its two memorable motives come, as we're accustomed to seeing, In bar one, it starts with an upbeat figure in sixteenth notes on the fifth scale degree, that's E, and dips down to its chromatically raised lower neighbor tone quickly, and then comes back up, and then plunges down an octave. In the second bar, it leaps up a fourth to the tonic note of A, and then moves upwards in broken thirds. Here's what it sounds like. After two bars the subject is answered down a fifth in the alto range and after a brief pause the top voice then introduces a counter subject against it. The counter subject is also distinctive although it resembles the subject in beginning on the fifth scale degree and after the first note repeats dipping down to a chromatically raised lower neighbor and back again all in eighth notes this time. The second measure of the counter subject starts with an eighth note back on the fifth note of the scale and then descends with sixteenths before reversing course and ascending back up the scale with two eighth notes. Here's what that sounds like. The second measure of the counter subject becomes of particular importance, both its shape and its rhythmic identity as we proceed. It's repeated immediately down a step against another distinctive element, a descending chromatic line played in double stops beneath it which you'll hear in a minute. This repeat delays the next fugal answer, which doesn't enter until measure seven, up an octave from the last one and harmonized with new multiple stop chords. Here now are the opening measures in an actual performance. excerpt ran to about measure 32 of the movement, and one thing is obvious after only a single hearing. The fugal subject fades from the picture pretty quickly, and the countersubject, especially the second bar of the countersubject, dominates for the next several measures, as it is repeated sequentially again and again, and we traverse new tonal ground. You'll also notice that the descending chromatic line that accompanied the second measure of the countersubject also continues to play an important role, sometimes above the spinning out of the countersubject motive and sometimes below. It's not that Bach doesn't introduce any new ideas. About two-thirds of the way through my excerpt, you may have noticed some connecting scale lines inserted between repetitions of the countersubject motive. And near the end of my excerpt, you may have also noticed that the scale lines, generally descending, play an increasingly larger role and the distinctive counter-subject motive seems to fade somewhat in significance. Eventually, we move into new territory, where the original motives disappear completely, and new, usually arpeggio-based figuration patterns begin to dominate. Multiple stops implying secondary melodic lines are less prevalent here, but still make some important contributions, especially in the repeated descending scale fragments against the repeated notes above. Here's an example of an episode dominated by these new, very violinistic figuration patterns. But, of course, the subject returns, albeit in a new key, as you heard near the end of my excerpt. Still, the return of the subject doesn't represent the start of a new full-fledged fugal exposition. It returns as part of a cadence on E minor and is imitated once. But after that point, motivic elements from the subject are initially spun out in ways that might not be immediately recognized. The shape may be retained, but the exact intervals are often modified. Eighth note figures are sometimes now heard in sixteenth notes, and the ascending broken thirds noted earlier are now heard in inversion. And then modus from the counter subject once again begin to take control, and as before, they eventually yield to sequentially repeated arpeggio patterns. But it's not long before the countersubject, the second measure of the counter subject specifically, usually paired with the descending chromatic line I mentioned earlier again asserts its domination. Back and forth we go until the end of the movement. We only hear an exact statement of the fugue subject once more, and it's in D minor, somewhat buried in the texture by the multiple stops above it. When we finally arrive back in A minor, we hear our last reference to the subject, but it's an inversion and could easily be missed. We'll hear the conclusion of the movement as the texture is thickened by the increased use of multiple stops and a florid 32nd note undulating scale passage takes us to the final cadence. The next movement, an andante in 3-4 in C major, may not be the most remarkable movement from a melodic point of view, but there are certainly some interesting aspects to it. Most notably, perhaps, the almost constant use of multiple stops, usually double stops, but some triple and even quadruple stops at key harmonic junctures. The initial melodic phrase begins on the third of the scale in an E, and after repeating that note, moves up a half step to the fourth scale degree dissonant against the repeating bass line below it, before then moving down the scale. Bach, however, does not do much with this opening idea. It returns in the opening measure of the second section of the movement, but that's common enough in binary form for movements such as this one. The second measure of the opening melody proves to be more important, especially its rhythmic identity. Two sixteenths leading to an eighth note tied to another eighth, and then followed by an eighth which is in turn followed by a descending line of sixteenths. It's hard to grasp in the abstract, but easy enough to hear, which you'll be able to do in just a minute. The third bar of the initial theme introduces a series of sixteenth notes, which unfolds in semi-sequential patterns for the next few measures. Here is the entire first section of eleven bars without the repeat. The second half of the movement adds some new motivic ideas, but its most striking aspect is the manner in which it gains in harmonic intensity as it moves first toward a minor and then e minor, embracing along the way a number of notable dissonances including tritone sevenths and even seconds before finally settling down back in c major. Here is the second section without repeat. Every movement has its own personality, sometimes determined by distinctive melodic elements, tonal or key contrasts, unusual textural effects, use of dissonance, or characteristic rhythms. For this final movement, in Duple Meter and marked allegro, it's the last of these. The movement begins with a not-untypical alternation of writing chordal arpeggios, played forte, and descending scale fragments in sixteenth notes, played piano. In the second measure, The melodic motives are more completely triad-based, but the major difference is the rhythm. In the first and third group of sixteenth notes, the second note in the series has been replaced by two thirty-second notes, doubling the activity and propelling the music ahead much more vigorously. Then, in measure three and four, this effect is increased as a pair of thirty-seconds take the place of sixteenths four times within the first two beats. This is what it sounds like. the entire first section and you couldn't help but notice that after introducing those rather distinctive rhythmic combinations right away in the opening measures, Bach lapses for quite a while into simple unadorned arpeggio patterns or arpeggio patterns alternating with scale fragments. In these measures, he relies on some sequentially based references to other tonal areas to maintain the listener's interest and by measure 14, he returns to the 32nd note substitution device we heard earlier. We peak just eight measures before the end with a repeated figure that sweeps up the scale in an impressive climax. We'll hear an excerpt from that point to the conclusion of the movement. We'll turn now to the very famous Partita Number 2 in D minor. The opening alemán begins with a very distinctive opening statement, beginning with a dotted eighth on the tonic D in double stops. It ascends the D minor scale in sixteenth notes for five notes before plunging down a diminished seventh to the leading tone C sharp below the tonic. Then it immediately leaps back up to the former note before beginning a scale-wise descent. But that descent is interrupted after only a couple of notes by another dramatic ascending leap, a sixth this time, to a daughter eighth note, which then immediately returns to the lower note. Harmonically, all of this makes perfect sense. All the ascending and descending leaps fit nicely into the harmony that Bach is expressing. But it is nevertheless a lot of melodic leaps to absorb in just the space of a single measure. Here is just the first measure reduced in tempo. As usual, my synthesized example sounds a bit robotic, but in the actual performance, which you'll hear in a moment, the violinist rushes ahead only to linger on the high point of the melody, a fairly common interpretive strategy. Of course, as distinctive as this opening measure is, it's by no means the only time that Bach employs a melody that begins by ascending a scale rapidly only to plunge down a diminished seventh and come right back up again. There is, for example, the opening two bars of the famous Invention Number no. 4, also in D minor. But of course, Bach's melody in the Allemande has that extra leap. That leap to the high point of the melody to make it even more distinctive. And yet, despite those distinctive qualities, Bach does not make a great deal of this opening idea as the movement proceeds. In the invention number no. four in D minor, he makes that idea the central focus of the piece, but not in this allemande. So, what is the central focus? First, let's hear an actual performance of the first section of the allemande. The opening measure is never quoted again, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exert an influence over what is to come. There are plenty of large ascending and descending leaps of a seventh or even greater, and sometimes the context is similar to that of the first measure. But it must be admitted that there are other ideas that seem to come to the fore in a more obvious way. For example, the idea introduced in the second bar, especially the second half of it. That figure, which moves into triplet rhythms, gets some sequential treatment in the opening measures and later on this idea. Where the 2nd 16th note in a pattern of 4 is doubled into two thirty-second notes. This becomes very important both in ascending patterns and descending patterns as we approach the cadence on the dominant. It's not unusual for Bach to introduce new ideas as he spins out the initial theme, of course, but it's perhaps little surprising that he takes so little interest in the very distinctive pattern heard in the first measure of the movement. We're going to jump ahead to the next movement, a corrente in D minor, 3-4 time, in which the initial thematic idea bears some resemblance to the opening measures of the previous movement, especially in its use of large ascending leaps a diminished seventh leap in the first measure, and a minor seventh in the second, and later on ascending leaps of an octave and a half or more. But there are key differences as well. This new theme introduces eighth note triplets already on the second beat of the first measure, and by the third measure begins to mix in dotted eighth sixteenth note patterns, which are likely to be interpreted as triplet eighths with the middle note omitted, as in the performance you'll hear in a minute. One of the key thematic ideas that emerges as early as the fourth measure and is heard four times in the twenty-four measure first section involves a series of dotted eighth-sixteenth figures bounding up a triad only to fall back by step after hitting the peak and passing to a series of undulating triplets. Here's a simplified and slowed down example of the idea first heard in measure ten. Now here is the entire first section without repeat. The second section begins with a near repeat of the opening measures of the first, now up a fifth on the dominant chord. It proceeds by exploiting many of the same motives as the first section, although the tonal goals are a bit different this time around. We'll turn now to the third movement, a Sarabande, again in 3 4, but with a much statelier tempo indicated. The first section, only eight bars long, employs traditional Sarabande rhythms, notably the opening two bars both consisting of quarter dotted quarter eighth patterns. Multiple stops are more in evidence in this movement, starting with the quadruple stop tonic chord on the initial downbeat and also gracing the downbeat at least of all but one measure. Here's the first eight measure section without the repeat. As you may have noticed, the lower layer of multiple stops again traces a descending motion from D, although with interruptions along the way. The line proceeds all the way down to G and then, as the violin once again runs out of notes, moves up to the F in the upper octave in the 7th bar before finding its way back to the tonic D. There are also some fairly graphic dissonances along the way, including some prominent major seventh dissonances, from the third beat of the second measure to the first of the third. So the section exudes a certain amount of tension. The second section is somewhat longer at 20 bars. It begins on a dominant seventh chord on D, which is soon revealed as the first step on the way to C major, which soon evolves, via a rather circuitous chromatic path, into C minor. Soon enough we've moved to G minor, after which we encounter some more sinuous chromaticism, although Bach's use of sequences keep us well grounded for the most part. Here is the second section after the repeat. The fourth movement is a jig in 12/8, actually labeled as the Italian version a giga. The first two bars feature ascending and descending triads with scale-wise passages in eighths and sixteenths. The second measure a near sequential repetition of the first, but it's not long before running passages of sixteenth notes begin to dominate, generally organized into series of two-bar sequences. Here's a simplified example of one such sequence starting in measure 10, based on a distinctive figuration pattern in which the highest melodic layer emerges out of repeated triadic arpeggios and lower neighbor tone figures. The second section, starting on the dominant as usual, makes particular use of the sequential patterns which I played earlier, either in original or varied form. But Bach introduces some new sequential patterns as well, as he also covers some new harmonic ground. But we're going to move on now to the final movement. It is a chaconne, and although we've certainly seen chaconnes before, this one is truly a monumental one, 257 measures in length. It's amazing that Bach can hold our interest that long and so intensely for a work of that duration based on a repeated descending bass line of only four bars in its original form. The initial theme, based on a saraband rhythm, has a stately quality about it and will probably remind the listener of the third movement, saraband. although this one begins on beat two of the first measure rather than on the downbeat. And the similarities with that earlier movement are not just rhythmic. The earlier Cerebon was also based initially on a descending bass line, so there's little doubt that the earlier Cerebon, a much more modest movement, was in a sense meant to prepare us for this massive finale. Let's hear the opening measures. The opening melody initially makes use of more direct repetition than the corresponding melody from the earlier sarabande movement, but the melodic shape here is quite strong nevertheless. After the previous giga, which featured no multiple stops whatsoever, we return here to a concentrated use of triple and quadruple stops in the opening measures. The texture thins a bit only briefly when the melody turns to ornamental passages of sixteenth notes to fill in the gaps between the strong melodic phrases. You may have noticed a couple of other things. First, although I referred to the bass line as descending, it clearly does not descend in a straight line. It moves from D down to C sharp, back briefly to D, then down to B flat, and then skips down a third to G before coming back to A. Just as in the Goldberg variations, the bass line is not restricted to a simple repetition of this pattern, but the pattern is implied virtually throughout the entire piece. Here is a simplified example of the bass line as it occurs in the opening measures. In my example, reflecting the opening four bars, the lowest note in the pattern, A, leaps up to a C-sharp, a leading tone, before returning to the original D to begin the pattern again. That C-sharp is frequently omitted as the piece proceeds. Also beginning in measure 17, Bach makes another change in the pattern, moving it up an octave and replacing it with descending chromatic half-steps. Here is a simplified example. This pattern is modified slightly when immediately repeated and we'll encounter it in yet a different form in a minute. Bach makes other changes as well. After the opening measures, the melody becomes increasingly more active, rhythmically speaking. Series of dotted 8th 16th note patterns begin to dominate with quick little 32nd note connecting fills more and more in evidence. And that transformation takes place in just the first section. The second section begins with a solid cadence on D minor and some new melodic ideas. The bass line remains intact, initially in the lower line of the double stops, which occur on downbeats and occasionally elsewhere. But the upper melodic line becomes even more active. The dotted rhythms are abandoned for the present, and rhythmically energetic patterns of 8th notes and increasingly 16th notes begin to dominate in arpeggio-based or scale-wise patterns. Here's the beginning of this new section, starting at Measure 25. At the beginning of the section you just heard, the descending chaconne pattern is very clear, but as we proceed and the double stops are eliminated, it is perhaps a little less obvious. Nevertheless, it's still present, woven into the patterns of eighth note and sixteenth note arpeggios and scale lines. And nine bars into this new section, when we revert to the eighth note patterns, we hear a return to the chromatically descending line we heard in the previous example. It, too, is woven into the pattern in much the same way we encountered in some of the Goldberg variations. As we move on, we encounter a series of sections all based on the Chaconne pattern, but introducing new motivic ideas and sometimes fitting in new chords along the way. There was actually a little of that in the example I just played. At times the Chaconne pattern seems absolutely clear, at other times it's a little harder to follow especially when the patterns play out in rapid runs of 32nd notes. For our next example, I'm going to skip all the way to measure 89. At this point, Bach writes out a familiar series of chords with instructions to arpeggiate them. I said that the chords are familiar, and for the most part they are, but he does incorporate some new chromatic chords along the way, some of them secondary dominance of the sort we've discussed before. Chords that temporarily seem to suggest that the chord that follows them is actually the tonic chord in the key, and which serve to increase the sense of urgency within the chord progression. Here's the section starting at measure 89 which builds to an impressive sonority-rich climax. I'm going to start just a few bars earlier as a lead-in. measures after the spot where my excerpt concluded, Bach returns to the original theme played powerfully in quadruple stops over a slightly modified chaconne pattern. But after just seven measures, he shifts gears again and we hear a varied, presumably quieter, major key version of the theme. Of course, it's not unusual for a set of minor key variations to include at least one in the parallel major key, and this monumental chaconne is, after all, rather like a set of variations on a baseline. Is this particular variation, this new version in D major, faithful to the Chaconne pattern? Reasonably so, and eventually introducing an interesting middle line in the process. At the end of my excerpt you heard a bit of the next section. It remains in D major, but the original references to the opening theme are replaced by an interesting new melody emerging from a flow of sixteenth notes, a combination of arpeggios and scale fragments punctuated by a new pattern of accented multiple stop chords. We stay in D major for a reasonably long time, and fairly generic arpeggio patterns eventually give way to some very interesting, rhythmically assertive alternations of double stops high in the range and repeated bass notes below. Here's a brief sample of it. As you can hear, at the end of my excerpt, we return to a statement of the original theme, now embellished with new counter-melodies and some rather involved multiple stops. After another passage of chordal arpeggios, we return to D minor, but it is not an immediate return, and even though built on a descending bass line starting on D, the opening measures of this section sound initially as if we're dropping in on F major. Within seconds, a new phrase, a varied form of which is repeated a step lower each time, has transported us back to D minor, but with some very expressive dissonances along the way. As you heard, we then move on to a new passage based on a new repeated phrase which temporarily abandons our chaconne pattern, at least for a while, although hints of it remain in evidence. There is a fair amount more to come, including some highly idiomatic violin passages based on repeated notes in multiple stops with melodic movement unfolding both below and above. But we are going to conclude these examples with the final measures of the movement which largely recapitulate the first, with the notable exception of a single arpeggio-based flourish leading to the final cadence. We've by no means exhausted this almost inexhaustible movement, but provided, I hope, enough glances into its workings that you'll be able to follow it more easily. The D Modern Partita is a great work, very likely Bach's greatest in the genre, although a number of excellent musicians have also made a case for its brethren. Running short on time for this episode, I'm only going to play a single excerpt from Partita Number 3 in E Major but it's a very famous and absolutely delightful one, the Gavotte en Rondeau. That's all for this episode. For our next, we'll again focus on one of Bach's contemporaries, this time George Friedrich Handel.